think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny. You have 60 seconds to comply. This is minute four. Part man. Part machine. All pod. Would you like to lead us off in the minutes, Connor? This minute begins with a lawyer saying aggravated assault and ends with <laughs> naked shower times. <laughs> I sent you my notes on the last frame. It's just me writing ass seven times. Ass, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now the titties are in the next uh, minute. Yes. <laughs> but it's, you know, equal opportunity nudity. It's all... Yes! Uh, which we'll get into soon, but... This is not the first time Paul Verhoeven has directed a movie with uh, equal opportunity nudity. It's fun to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a one hell of a concept when you think about how kind of prudish, you know, in many ways the 80s kind of were. Yeah. And yet casual nudity, you know, like just, hmm. oh, here's a topless woman in the background of a scene. Oh, okay. Well, that was definitely an 80s staple, especially of this kind of genre, like, you know, the action flick. And yet the nudity in this is not really that gratuitous. No, it, it feels really natural. It's, well, I've worked in theatre, so I'm a costume maker and designer and mm -hmm. dressing actors or dancers backstage is just yeah i'm so used to people walking around naked and having to dress them i've never been in that environment particularly but being a cosplayer especially when you're doing charity work and everyone's crowded in a small room trying to get changed mm. you kind of get used to other people's bodies even if there's not there's no nudity but you know yeah yeah so this scene is very much like that where it's just yep everyone's there to have a shower there's nothing weird going on i mean as much as this is <laughs> extremely relevant. It's not the focus of this minute, though, when you think about it, because this is the introduction to our boy, or potentially our boy, Alex Murphy. Yeah, my man. But we can still talk about nudity if you want. I mean, nudity as a concept is quite interesting as it's used in art and fiction, so mm. we can't, we'll put that one to the corner because. We're going to have a lot more of it next minute. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, our hero, our main man, Alex Murphy, not yet Robocop, nope. has just walked through the door of the Detroit precinct. Yeah. And I actually never realized before, I, you know, I've seen this movie so many times and it just went right over my head where he says that he's transferring from mm -hmm. uh, Metro South. Yes. And I was just like... Oh yeah, he's new to this place. Hmm. His rapport with Lewis yeah. is so good instantly that I just forget. I just go, oh yeah, they've known each other for years. That's the th curious thing when you think about this movie and the uh, idea of like the cops themselves. They are all in this together. Okay, there's a bit of bickering maybe when it comes to Robocop themselves. We're definitely going to subscribe to uh, the Maggie Mae Fish theories here, mm -hmm. even though technically Murphy didn't want to transfer, but that's something we can talk about in a tick. Mm. No, the funny thing is all the cops themselves, you get a sense that they're all in this rather shit situation and they are totally on board with it, helping each other out. I mean, the whole fact is like, you know, when um, we'll find out in the next minute or minute after when um, Fredericks dies, every cop in the room is just like, oh shit. And even Reed is basically saying, you know you can turn up if you can yeah no one's expecting you to because you know we're dealing with a shit show out there to the point where they're even talking about striking especially because of all the ocp fuckery yeah that's something that stood out to me in this minute as well we're only four minutes in and so much is already being established this, i know every little choice every little bit of dialogue is pushing the story forward it is this is this is the kind of movie you would teach in film school or just writing in general this is how you do it yeah We'll definitely go into this in the gaslighting section, but yes. it's um, the pacing in this movie, it's got a good beat. It's not too fast and it's not too slow. It's not hitting you over the head with information, but it's giving you some good exposition that fills in that background. See, the funny thing is, thinking back to this particular minute, I always think of the boardroom scene coming before the Alex Murphy scene. Mm. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. Yeah, I do too. Because I feel, oh, well, he doesn't show up until... Oh, glad I'm not the only one. ...much later. No, he, he's there. He's already there. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's just the boardroom scene is so iconic with uh, Ed 209. Mm. And you think that's kind of the opening of the film. It at least sets up a lot of what's going on regarding Robocop specifically uh, the project robocop mm. and it does tie into this part of the film specifically i never even really noticed that even though i watched this movie somewhere between one and a hundred times shit million times <laughs> yeah yeah i can't say i've seen this over a hundred times we will end up seeing it about a hundred times by the time we get to the end of this oh yeah i am fully on board with all that but it's funny how our brain tricks us 
in those situations. And yet, it actually puts the cart before the horse in that sense of like, it sets up this idea that Murphy got transferred from a nice precinct to basically the biggest shithole in Detroit. Yeah. And we find out that that's part of OCP's plan. Yeah, so there's a bit of dialogue where they go, what brings you here? And he says, beast me, man. I think OCP is moving a lot of guys up here. Exactly, yeah. So already his fate is being orchestrated. And I mean, it might not have been that they were looking at Murphy specifically to become Robocop, but... No, it was a it was a wide net. They just happened to get a good cop mm. in a bad situation. This is pointed out specifically in Robocop 2. It was really a lucky shot that that happened mm. in many ways. That the good cop got killed in such a way that he was a perfect candidate. I just remember that in Robocop 2, they basically say that the reason why... Well, they're kind of hinting at it. Mm. That the reason why Murphy worked and no one else does as Robocop is because, you know, he was a, he's a good Christian boy and he wouldn't kill himself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so dark. We will definitely get into this. Verhoeven, he is an, a devout madman, but he's also a devout Christian. <laughs> he peppered uh, Christ's allegory throughout this entire film. No way. I mean, yeah, Robocop is basically... I mean, when it comes to mechanical Jesuses, I think you've got Optimus Prime. Yep. And then you've got Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> Very close second. Yeah, and... Uh, Robocop at least murders for the, the side of good. Yes. Uh, yeah, not to tension too much, but I've been researching the Bayformers movies, maybe doing, I'm going to do a video essay one day, and yeah, both of us are really upset that Optimus Prime straight up kills a human man mm-hmm. in, I think it's the fourth movie, I don't even remember anymore. I've only seen the first one, and that was enough. Yeah, yeah, you were, you're a sensible person. I'm just getting the second-hand, uh, <laughs> loathing from you. <laughs> I'm having so much fun, just, it, you're my therapist now, my Transformers <laughs> therapist, like, so tell me your feelings about Optimus Prime murdering someone. Michael Bay's so angry. He's so angry about everything and everyone. Please show me on the Optimus Prime doll where Michael Bay touched you. <laughs> in my heart. But not in a good way. He broke it. <laughs> in my robot soul. It's literally on this microchip. You just pull it in and out and that's it's called Soul.exe. <laughs> it's bloatware. <laughs> Shit. I don't know where to go from there. Nah, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Anyway. Um, so Murphy's told to get your armor on. And I don't know if that's really a reference to he's eventually going to be in armor 24-7, but... I think that's just a sly nod. Yeah. The writers on this were... I don't want to say too smart for their own good, but they knew what they were doing. Yeah, I feel like that's just a that's a little, little, little wink. It's a lovely nod. But yeah, it does specifically refer to the body armor, and I've got something to talk about that. Well, Pepper, this is a teaser for later on in the pod. Yeah, I was just doing all these little little teasers all over the place yeah oh you're gonna love this <laughs> okay so yeah alex murphy um because you know this is us we've got to do the obligatory star trek reference well shit it's exactly what i was hoping to spare you from mm-hmm. so he was uh played by peter weller of course who was admiral marcus in the worst star trek movie ever made mm. <laughs> I will stand the final frontier before I will stand <sighs> into darkness. I, don't know, I mean, Insurrection, Nemesis, then into Insurrection darkness. was a great Star Trek TNG episode. It wasn't necessarily a great movie. Yeah, it makes a terrible movie. My God. I mean, you could have had a movie with, like, law or literally anyone. <laughs> and then, yeah, Nemesis... Nemesis is teeth drying. But here's the funny thing, because Sergeant Reed, I had to make sure I got his name right, because Sergeant Reed is one of the best characters in this movie and he does not get enough credit. True. Played by the actor, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Robert Dokui. He unfortunately died in February 2008, so... Oh, quite a while ago. RSVP uh, Sergeant Reed, because he's also played a Klingon in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Hell yeah. He plays the character Nogra in the episode Sons of Mok. Which I'm not going to spoil for you, but I know exactly which character he is. It's just like, yeah, nice. Yeah, not sure if I've seen that one. Anyway. <laughs> it's season four. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I've seen it then. Oh, uh, it's the one where um, Worf's brother turns up and asks uh, Worf to uh, e- execute him for dishonor. Wait, season four? Season four. Worf's not in season four. Yes, it is. Worf's in season four. Huh. Nah, maybe... Wolf turns up at the beginning of season four. Right, maybe I'm in season three. Kern! That's it! I knew there was a spelling joke there somewhere. Oh yeah, sorry, I'm up at the end of season three. Got my numbers wrong. Ah, you're just getting into probably one of the best arcs of of DS9 is literally like season four onwards. Cool. 
but yeah, Worf's a great addition and it's a great episode. Kind of love and hate the Klingon stuff in Deep Space Nine, mm. but this is one of those like, I really dig this episode. But yeah, because Kern's a cool character and his times in like DS9 are pretty cool and his times in TNG were pretty cool as well. I think we should have a recurring segment where we see if there are any Star Trek connections with any of the cast that continue to show off as we introduce them. Well, the only other major character that I could think of that's in this film... Uh, except for Clarence Brodica's gang, I've not looked into them. Mm. The only major character that I've looked into for Star Trek connections is Nancy Allen, or who unfortunately never did Star Trek. Hmm. Missing out. <laughs> I know. What would you have liked her to play? Nancy Allen. Oh, she'd have to be a... Ooh. Yeah, she'd have to be a Bajoran. I was thinking of Bajoran as well. I don't know why. I could yeah. just imagine it with a little little nose thing. Badass woman. Yeah. Bajoran. Yeah, there you go. If, if she seems like a woman who can kick your ass, probably Bajoran. She could have been Akira. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In that casting call, I could imagine her mm. in that lineup. Yeah. If they're not in Star Trek, they're casted in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> Which alien would you be in Star Trek? That's the new segment. Yes. So I just want to quickly talk about Murphy again, mm-hmm. because uh, Paul Verhoeven talks about in the commentary and this is kind of an interesting thing they wanted a great actor to play Robocop they needed someone they knew that could act the physicality of that but they cast for jawline yeah I heard that and when you sent me the file it sort of had a little bit of the audio commentary oh. but I couldn't quite hear it but I heard that bit there oh sorry I'll, I'll fix that for later okay but yeah I did hear a little bit of, so what, what was he saying they knew that because of the lower part of the face was going to be visible mm. they needed someone with a particularly strong jawline that's what they do with Batman as well I'm pretty sure yeah the only person I would probably say that they probably didn't cast for jawline was probably Michael Keaton hmm. this is not to denigrate Michael Keaton but it's just one of those things where if you think about it like that man's lower face with those lips and all that okay a lot of people hated the casting of Michael Keaton for Batman back in the day until you know they saw it which is so strange yeah it's the same with every Batman everyone hates them until they see him and then it's the best Batman oh Heath Ledger is gonna suck he's gonna be the worst Joker ever oh god I remember that so badly uh, jared leto hold my beer <laughs> no i think uh, heath ledger's joker was a perfect joker for mm. that universe and, yeah, and the same thing with michael keaton i think so in terms of casting him for looks mm. he does have a very distinct lower part of the face maybe not a, yeah. a strong jawline but yeah. there's a distinct there's a lot of character there and i think they, they cast really well mm. yeah and well you gotta remember michael keaton at that point was not considered to be an well, he was an actor in the sense that he was acting, but uh, he was a comedy actor. Mm. He had done a lot of comedies like Mr. Mom, which is the usually the derogatory term. Oh, you're casting Mr. Mom as Batman. Oh, that's a point. So what was Peter Weller known for before this? Oh, I don't know. Because I love Buckaroo Banzai. So this was 1987, so before that we had... Because I always had it in my head that Buckaroo Bonsai was after Robocop. No. I could be mistaken though. It's 1984. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and I love Buckaroo Bonsai. I think that's just... Admission, uh, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but I still haven't seen it. You don't it. watch anything. I finally found my copy of it, and I still haven't watched it. You don't watch anything. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I watch a lot of YouTube, and I watch a lot of movies I'm recovering, <laughs> recovering, reviewing by minutes. I'm recovering from Transformers. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've still got one movie to go. Quick tangent, because it's era-appropriate, era uh, I just... I've been watching a lot of, like, leftist YouTube. Things have been popping up into my mentions about how some of the fucking dirtbag alt-right guys have been arcing up again. And I just needed something great and wholesome, so I started re-watching uh, The Wizard of Speed and Time again. Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's not a well-known film, but it is... It's about a guy who's a special effects artist in Hollywood and, like, can't get jobs. He's going through the Hollywood studio and they keep screwing around and he finally gets a job and the producer starts screwing around but guy who made it Mark Jitloff he's one of those guys who writes, directs, acts, star you know but he also does all the special effects this was made in the mid 80s so it was released about 1985 and the, the real world producer who played the movie producer in the movie mm. screwed him over and stole all the money oh. guy uh, Mike, Mike actually lets people release this because he got the rights back he managed to get the rights back to the movie and he lets people um, basically uh, creative commons the movie and you can watch it on YouTube as long as you don't make any money of it. He's cool for distribution. Mm. And I had the VHS copy somewhere. It's just a, such a great feel-good movie. As long as you don't think about what happened in real life. What's it called? The Wizard of Speed and Time. They do live-action stop-motion. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's one of those. Okay. Yes. 
Well, Mike Jitloff was actually an animator for Disney. Not a cell animator, an ink and paint animator, but he would do stop motion animation for like the toys. So there's an actual famous Disney short film he made for, I think it was one of the Magical World of Disney specials. Mm. It's like a solid minute of just like the toys in like uh, all the Disney toys coming to life kind of deals. And what's really cool, because they never credited the animators on all these things, he actually snuck his name and his his friend's name is one of those weird names is divin something i didn't even know know how to pronounce it but he's like his creative partner hmm. and he snuck their names into the animation in such a way <laughs> that they couldn't remove them um but yeah looking at the roles that peter weller's had over the years it really is hmm. just buckaroo bonsai and robocop that he's best known for he hasn't really done anything that's super i mean there's leviathan but he wasn't like a Oh, I love Leviathan. That's a great film. He hasn't been a, a gigantic star, at least since the Robocop film. Yeah. Oh, he was the voice of Batman in... Uh, Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Returns. Perfect. Perfect. Just, yeah, he was so good in that. Just that grizzled, rough voice. Great. He does a great job. He does have that kind of just... That voice you just hear and go, Oh my God, that's Peter Weller. And then you say, like, Oh my God, that's Peter Weller's Batman. It's great. There seems to be something about actors from that era that especially mm. in these genres that I don't know they have this kind of cult following and they've just got this this particular charisma you know Jeffrey Combs yes. Bruce Campbell yes. all those kind of guys there's just something about them that uh they're just really cool basically it's like the um the B-grade cult movie guys because they're not stars no. not to sound rude they're not stars so they just get cast in practically everything because they're great actors in their own right they're almost like the equivalent of podcasters when it comes to the <laughs> the media world where it's just you know i've got a bit of a following i do have fans but i'm not like yeah. a star it's this weird yeah. middle ground where you can appreciate this kind of cult following yeah yeah and the 80s were yeah probably it's the first time where especially with the advent of home video this is also the era where the slasher film became a big business, even though that never got mainstream attention. Mm. Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention the Naked Lunch. I forgot. I... Of course, Naked <laughs> that was Lunch. My... I, was... I know. Yeah. I knew if I didn't say it out loud, so I was going to get to it. And I got. We then we went on a tangent, but I knew if I didn't mention it, someone would get upset. Yes. I just realised I've seen a lot more Peter Weller films than I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed Naked Lunch. I had no idea what was going on, but I need to watch it again because I watched it when I was like sixteen, and I was very confused. I was probably around about the same age. I remember just. It came out. It was like, oh my god, it's Robocop. I'm going to watch this film. Yeah. And I still couldn't tell you what's going on. And of course, you know, completely sober, so that might not help. <laughs> was it? Was um based on a William S. Burroughs? I think novel? so. And uh, directed by Cronenberg. So what did you expect, really? I didn't know the Cronenberg connection, but in hindsight, that makes absolute sense. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, must admit, I would love to get a copy of The Fly. That, I haven't watched that in a good long time. It's been a while, yeah. The one joke I had written down. Oh, yes. So, casting for jawlines, I'm guessing Robert Sadar was just way too much. <laughs> and maybe, yeah, I was, well, because we mentioned Bruce Campbell, maybe that was too much as well. The chin jutted out too much. Yeah. Oh, God. He looked like... Bruce Campbell! That could almost work, though. I think Bruce Campbell would probably have played it a bit too camp. Yeah, probably. <laughs> a little too groovy. Yeah, because... Campbell does have that just unmatched charisma for some things. You know, like, you know, I just can't recall him playing subtle, or at least not playing subtle well. Yeah, Weller has this... I don't even know if there's a word for this quality, but you see it in a lot of Ridley Scott's synthetics or his androids or his replicants, where there's this longing, there's this... Gravitas? Kind of a sadness, kind of... There's an intensity there, I guess. It's a little bit of... Yeah, Gravitas as well. It's a little bit of everything. Mm. And he's very much able to, in a quiet way really draw upon that essence whatever it is and he does that a lot in this especially with like you know he's having to act through a freaking fiberglass cage mm. and he pulls it off yeah that it's a real acting challenge and he i can't imagine anyone else doing what he's done here mm. especially not joel kinnaman anyway <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know how much that's joel kinnaman because i just no that's a, that's a little bit of a low blow because i have just finished watching Alter carbon gotta say he's actually pretty good and he deserves better no that's actually my point i was gonna say the only point of comparison i've got off the top of my head for the guys acting is robocop the remake and suicide squad suicide squad altered carbon house of cards that's all I've seen. Those, those are two are not good examples to try and, like, <laughs> quick tangent. 
I don't know what it is about the Zack Snyderverse where it comes to just completely ruining actors' performances. Well, mm. except for when actors ruin their own. Yeah, because most of the time it does come down to directors, and I mm. definitely noticed that a mutual friend of ours, Luke Milton, did a series called ScarJo a Go-Go where he reviewed yes. Scarlett Johansson's complete oeuvre. And... Uh, well, the filmography in order, and I, I don't know where I got up to, but I don't think he's completed it since... No... Uh, Age of Ultron's the last one he did. Yeah. But it's still all there, and I, I definitely recommend it. And I really didn't notice just how much a director influences a an actor's performance until then because mm. and this is something I've, I've learned by doing the moves by minutes as well is that a lot of viewers don't understand how films come together how the business works yeah. and so they do you know they'll see Robert Pattinson's a terrible actor because he was in you know, another actor who's going to be terrible at Batman is probably going to knock it out the fucking park mm-hmm. yeah and so people don't understand well no it's because it's Twilight and this is what the script is and this is what the director wants and this is da 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 so it's really not and Shia LaBeouf oh well he's just a terrible actor because no it's Michael Bay made him scream and go whoa 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 like a million times yeah and then there's Kingdom of the Crystal Skull yeah but again It's, and that's another thing is where... It's just also not a good film as well. Which is a terrible film. But it's sort of, that's what Hollywood was making at the time. That's what Shire's agents and all of that were kind of trying to make his image into until he snapped and just went, no, I want to do weird indie shit for the rest of my life and pull my own teeth (laughs) out and wear paper bags on my head. So yeah, it's absolutely not about the actor most of the time. They are kind of a puppet to a degree. There's, There's a few actors who... Well, we touched upon this in previous minutes with Henry Cavell and like you know how holy shit you look at some of the Witcher and it's like wow this guy is very charismatic he's very charming he's a freaking good Mm. actor and then you think about his Zack Snyder directed performances and they're so bland yeah but then again this has always been one of my criticisms of the Zack Snyder films is that they get great actors Mm. and they give them nothing yeah and you can see some of them trying like Lawrence Fishburne is trying to be a good Perry White yeah that's the thing there are some actors that you can just basically point the camera at and they will give you a very consistent performance every single time mm. but but if they're being directed to to give like zero energy to a scene mm. or like zero emotion yeah and i think someone like okay going back to the movie like robocop the whole idea is that he is a guy with no emotion because he's a robot mm. and even he still manages to convey a lot more gravitas than yeah <laughs> than henry cowell's superman in two films i mean at least he smiles and Justice League. Well, look at, like, Keanu Reeves. Well, his career has pretty much... You can divide it into two parts, where it was Bill and Ted, where, oh, he's the, you know, goofy, himbo, (laughs) teen idiot. No, yeah. And then... Every single time he did a performance afterwards, it's like, oh, it's just fucking Ted and his goofy smile. Yeah, and then... Well, because I'm a 90s... That guy's work is diverse, man. Because as a 90s kid, all I knew him from was... Uh, in the matrix as a neo yeah. and so then the stereotype was this guy can't act he's very wooden he doesn't have any emotion yeah but that's what the wachowskis wanted everyone is exactly. very stiff like no one looks at um carrie ann moss and goes oh well she can't act oh it's very wooden performances why they're both told to perform the exact same way they're both doing the same wooden acting yeah. so why does keanu get that i guess he doesn't look hot in uh, yeah, as true. hot in um, in rubber. <laughs> yeah, maybe everyone's just distracted. This is calories. I'm guessing he would look hot in rubber. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> he can work it. Even now, just like he's immortal. He's amazing. <laughs> so I just did a vlog on Bill and Ted, and this is something I've been quietly reflecting on for like the past week. Just thinking back to the movie, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was really good. But the thing I have with Keanu's rendition of Ted mm. is that there's no goofy smile anymore. No, yeah, I've heard that. Where he's, I haven't watched it yet. But that he's—it's well worth it. It's a brilliant. He's film. aged and not mm. like not saying that like he's old, but he's just like he's matured and he's not able to tap into that real carefree silliness. He doesn't have the useful energy. I think Al Swinters does to a bit, but even his feels tempered as well. Mm. I mean, they're both. Bill and Ted was thirty years ago. Yeah. So I'm not saying, oh my god, the movie's ruined. It's just one of those things. It's just on the reflex line. I almost wish there was a bit more of that goof mm. in Ted's performance. Yeah, and I don't know what. And it is—it is kind of there, but it's because I mean there. Are some actors who can you know well especially comedic actors who will bring that kind of goofy energy f- yeah. their entire lives but yeah it's weird how keanu's definitely gone down this very like zen yeah. quiet kind of path i think zen is a 
really actually a really good description. He still acts like Ted. Mm. He's not acting like John Wick. That's interesting. That is a thing I think people do underestimate with actors. There are actors that have one role. Mm. They do get typecast, but sometimes they just have that one role. They just they can only really act in that one way. And there's plenty of actors that are like that. Yeah. But Keanu is very much a character actor. It is hit and miss. Yeah, but at least he goes for it. Just don't make him yeah. do an English accent. Jesus Christ. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Jesus fucking Christ, man. What the hell were you doing in that film? Like, literally, <laughs> what the fuck? Cast anyone else. <laughs> literally anyone else. Cast someone that can do an English accent. Yeah, did they know that England uh... exists? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad film, but it's fucking bug naughty, the amount of choices that fucking... It was Coppola, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. The amount of choices he made in that fucking film. Like, what? The other thing I wanted to talk about in this minute. So, uh, yes, we've referenced Maggie Mae Fisher's video essay on Robocop and how she does a transgender reading on it. I think it's, it's definitely more apparent once he becomes Robocop. But here... I mean, he's an outsider. There is that. But it's not like he's having yeah. trouble conforming. We don't really get that going on. He's not... If anything, he adjusts very quickly to his situation. Yeah, everyone seems to embrace him. Yeah. Going back to what I was saying earlier about it, it's actually kind of really cool that all the cops are like, this is such and such, this is such and such, welcome to hell, yeah. but we're all in this together. Yeah, I like that sort of camaraderie. It's almost... This is 2020 when we're recording this for prosperity, and but we are dealing with police brutality issues. Mm. We are dealing with global pandemics and all this other stuff. So it's kind of nice to see good cops. Yeah. And it's like, wow, in context, it's like, I can't believe it. Yeah. (laughs) Because even in the 80s, there was definitely still police corruption and all that. Okay, there is a scene later on where the cops are opening fire on Robocop. Mm. But even there, and I'm not entirely 100% sure, but I think it's all the cops that knew Murphy beforehand. Yeah. Are the ones that are saying, no, don't shoot him. Yeah. Yeah, they don't want to. This is probably one of the more positive depictions of police that I can think of. You know, it's weird not to see them. Well, at least when it's not like a, you know, he is the sheriff of this small town and everyone loves him. You know, like Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, it's that sort of thing, yeah. Like, well, given especially that it's in the genre of cyberpunk and, you know, corrupt police are everywhere in that genre. And It's surprisingly optimistic for a cyberpunk, isn't it? It is, that (laughs) the corruption's not coming from the police level, it's coming from above the it's coming from above with ocp and Mm. i think think there's an element of truth in that Mm. uh i mean yes there are individual cops who are just monsters but i think a lot of and i think this applies to everything not just the the police but everything is systemic everything comes from the top down our problems aren't and this is something that bothers me in Okay, say for example, I read an interview by Ridley Scott about Raised by Wolves, Mm -hmm. his new show, and he's talking about, you know, science fiction can really, you know, it can be a wake-up call, it can tell people to change their attitudes, and I'm going, but most people who watch your shows or your movies are not the people who are in power to actually make any real change. And that's the thing is if you want to make real change, you got to go to the top. You're not talking to the people because the people are not responsible. Yeah, this is why I think a lot of uh, postmodernism theory, especially deconstructing media, is a handy tool, but it doesn't... Yeah, it's hard to address the systemic issues when the people who can change the systemic issues, well, let's face it, they don't particularly want to. They don't care, and it benefits them. They don't care. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing is, I remember as a kid watching things like, I don't know, Fern Gully or something about environmentalism or mm. global warming or whatever, and just going, well, if I can understand this message, why can't the grown-ups do something about it and understand this message? And then I became an adult and realized, oh, because there's money to be made and they don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It all essentially boils down to two things, money and power. Yep. They use interlinked regardless yes slight tangent so i do post a little bit of this kind of stuff on social media and it's funny when you turn around and say you know this is a very political podcast but i expected it to be i know but you know that's good do it this is stuff that we can talk about when the fucking boardroom scene turns up Mm. but you know it's amazing how many times when you say fuck the billionaires or these like you're pointing out when billionaires are literally becoming richer over a global pandemic Mm -hmm. and you always get people going well they do some good (sighs) 
Like, that actually excuses the literal exploitation that they do. Throw some change at some charities yep. when, in reality, when I don't think people quite understand what a billion dollars could do. And if someone's worth exactly. multiple billions of dollars, they could literally pay for every single American citizen's yep. medical bills, yep. possibly twice over. I'll do like the post which is said, if someone gets over $999 million, they get a medal and no more money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you've maxed You out. win capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, when you catch all the Pokemon in Pokemon, you just sort of, you get your little certificate, and that's it. Yeah. Can't get any more Pokemon. Yeah, until the next game comes around, and that's also corporate greed, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta catch them all. They keep making Pokemon so we buy more Pokemon. Yes. So, I don't know, maybe we should reserve the talk of nudity in film for the next yeah. minute. I guess it's more relevant than, yeah. So I think this is a good time, speaking of clothing optional, how's that for a fucking segue? So we've established with our credentials. You have a background in costume, design, and in theatre, yeah. etc. I'm a schlubber makes prop. So I was doing a little bit of research on the OCP uniform because I'm thinking, I want to make one of these. Have you done any research into this? No. Aha, then this is going to knock your fucking socks off. Oh, I'm excited. I was looking into the helmet because mm. I thought, okay, I what will I need to do the helmet? I think those helmets look really cool. And I was looking at the body art and I thought, ooh, I bet uh, Connor would know how to make the body art. Because it just basically looks like some like foam stitched onto... Yeah, it's very simple. Yeah. Then I saw a random post on a forum somewhere about the OCP cop helmet. And I heard a rumor that... I heard a rumor. <laughs> I heard a rumor. I had to get that in there. Oh, no. So now it must be true. I heard a rumor that the OCP helmet is the exact same helmet they use in Tron. Oh. And I did a bit of research and check out the photo. Oh, yeah, because it is a real hockey helmet. Yeah. So, oh, i got to share that with Tronologically Speaking, the Tron Movies by Minute podcast, of which I am on episodes 20-something. <laughs> oh, cool. I had to find two pictures that looked similar enough. There is obviously a lot of differences, but the helmet is called the Cooper SK2000. It's vintage now. Mm. I think you can see like the the top of the head is perfect. The the side ridges are perfect. Of course, it's got the visor on. The visor hides a lot of that detail, and it's just got coverings on the side where the uh, the sideburnsy part. Yes. And stuff. So it's just it's it's a modified helmet. The other thing is back it looks like they filled it in. It looks like they filled in a lot of holes and stuff like that. And I found one online. <sighs> Make a mold of it. <laughs> Or even better, I found a Pepecura bottle as well, so I could just probably make one out of foam. Nice. But I found one online in large, so it might be too small for my head. It depends on if I can fit it in without, just by removing all the padding. Hmm. But the model apparently they used wasn't as small for Tron, so that should fit you. There are There is one online on eBay for about 200 bucks. Yeah, now I can live out my, my Tron dreams. I just thought of all the people to share that tidbit of information with i was gonna immediately call you like no no save for the yeah. podcast <laughs> yeah because uh, i also do the tron legacy moves by minute legacy minute mm -hmm. and so yeah this is the sort of stuff i am definitely interested in i must admit i want to get an ocp uh, cop uniform ready for like supernova next year i think yep I'm going to be a tiny Robocop. I do have the pet files somewhere for Robocop. Oh my god, that's a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of... Uh, that's Yeah, it's a lot of work. But um, <laughs> that's why you have me around to help. <laughs> yes. In terms of set design in this movie, I mean, it's not really design. They're, they're probably using a real location, but... It's so good. I feel like it's really timeless. Mm. The way this film is shot is, you know, I've been watching Michael Bay movies all week or for two weeks i don't even know anymore it's just bayhem all to the, all the day every day yeah you know you've got some directors who they use very distinct camera angles and techniques and color palettes and all of that and i feel like verhoeven's films are more there is a style but it has nothing to do with mm. how they're shot mm. it's really interesting he has a very traditional shooting style yeah. at least i haven't seen anything too interesting so far and a lot of the locations look fairly i mean this is probably most relevant to robocop and starship troopers is mm. even though they're both science fiction they feel grounded they feel very possible they feel quite mm. timeless yeah especially when you're talking about starship troopers it, starship troopers feels almost like a docudrama 
in the uh, clearly uses a tripod and locks down dollies. He's not doing like any spinning camera angles. He's not doing any Dutch angles. He's not doing no, none of that. He's not doing quick cuts either. He does a lot of long takes. Yeah, a lot of his shots hold for. They say the average is about five or six seconds. He tends to go a bit longer than that. Yeah, the only real kind of frenetic section in this movie that I can think of purely because of the location it makes sense is the discotheque yeah you know a lot of flashing lights a lot of quick cutting a director cameo hmm. we'll definitely talk about that when we get there oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> the infamous director cameo of Robocop I just love when they either in Terminator or Robocop when you get a character like that and put them in that nightclub <laughs> setting it's just it, it's pure <laughs> cyberpunk it's pure synthwave and yeah even like I am someone who is in bed by 10 30 I don't drink I don't like really loud spaces where you can't just have a conversation and yet the nightclub aesthetic mm. is very appealing and cinematic I just don't want to actually be there well here's the irony you say that you love a movie set disco because it's all flashing lights and no noise yeah you always have to get the people to mime to a track if they're gonna try and record sound but then again who's gonna be on a movie set with their blaring music yeah they, they usually have to dub because people dancing will make enough noise yeah i know when they film music <laughs> videos they will have the song playing but i guess for a film itself not not so much like for a music video it's usually for dubbing like you know if you've got the singer there singing the singers trying to sing along there they're miming mm. it's all usually for miming purposes yeah. and you know the good musicians are the ones who are able to mime without playing mm. my favorite ones are the ones where the the uh, musicians do really fuck up the miming <laughs> there's a great video out there it's nirvana on top of the pops mm. and because everything on top of the pops is mimed oh wow didn't know that Top of the Pops have never played live, mm. and this is Nirvana. So the only thing that's usually recorded live in like a like a show like Top of the Pops is the vocals because they're hard to mime. Yeah, but instruments, drums, and stuff like that, they're usually miming. Miming drums? Oh my god! How do you even do that? Well, watch Dave Grohl, and you'll see how not to do it because he's just basically um, Captain Cavemanning the drum kit. It's amazing. <laughs> Kurt Cobain is playing his guitar right-handed. <laughs> Which is a dead giveaway. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. <laughs> they did not give a fuck this entire performance. I think Chris is literally throwing his bass guitar in the in the air half the song. <laughs> and whenever Kurt starts singing, he chucks the guitar behind him and puts both hands on the microphone, even though the guitar is still yeah. playing. <laughs> it's it is glorious. <laughs> oh, you gotta put that in the footnotes. Oh yeah, I'll have to try and do. Because uh, I remember it was on um, a video they put out. Nevada put out. Yeah, they're probably pretty proud of it. <laughs> back in the mid nineties. Yeah, this is before like the band split up uh, in a very, very dramatic way. But it's got to be out there on YouTube somewhere because it is so good. Should we jump to the gaslighting of Robocop? Alex, how do you feel? I feel fine, Dr. Norton. Yes, so in this minute of gaslighting of Robocop, we get the glorification of American patriocy in the Middle East. This minute begins with Maddox leading the news reporter into the field and ends with Novak saying, that would have been American men and women risking their lives. Yeah, I... I... Mm. Okay, so nothing really happens in the minute, yeah. but I must say, as a piece of visual storytelling, it's pretty... Blunt is not the right word. It's good for what the tone they're trying to set. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's very overt. It's funny, to me, this reads as more overt mm. than the original Robocop yeah. with the new segment, and I, I don't know... But it's, the movie has nothing to do with the Middle East. That's the biggest problem, is that none of this ties into anything else. And yeah. that's, I guess we haven't really talked about that. You know, I kept circling around, going, why is this not working? Why is it, it has fucking nothing to do with anything that the rest of the movie is about. And that's why it feels totally disconnected. All it's doing is setting up the premise that we need a humans to be a robot mm. instead of an AI, because you can't trust an AI, but you can definitely trust a human with a freaking gun. Because mm. humans have never accidentally kill people so we see ed 209 sort of uh i think that's basically what it's supposed to be it's the it's the ed 209 glory shot yeah and then there's some other androids walking around and they're saying please exit your homes for a non-invasive scanning procedure which it's very invasive <laughs> like that's that's kind of the joke is i mean they should be able to scan through walls but you know you gotta get out of your house and stand there it probably would be irony if it was just handled better yeah that's the thing is everything's played so straight and so flat mm. 
that a scene like this, which is bordering on ridiculous, doesn't actually go into that territory, so you're just left kind of confused. But you notice that you can tell this is the Middle East because everything is brown and sandy. Mm-hmm. So we were talking earlier about camera techniques and stuff, mm. and this has, you know, your sepia tone over the top, yep. you've got the handheld camera, you've got a lot of cliche modern filming techniques. It's all, it's all just too much, all at once. You know, when I started this uh, insane project, I fully expected to suffer alone on the Robocop uh, remake. And, you know, you don't have to do this, you know. <laughs> I call this my penance for a reason. I came up with this dumb idea. I mean, I... Well, eventually there's going to be some <laughs> cyborg porn, so I'm going to be fine with yeah. that. Once that, I can just... So is that why he has a fleshy hand? Ah. For her pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. The other thing that bothers me is the Android design. You know, I'm a mm. I'm an Android connoisseur, if you will. And yes, the design is lackluster. But also, you'd think the whole fucking point of them is to show this is what Murphy will eventually become to or come to resemble. Mm. And no, it doesn't look anything like what the Robocop costume looks like. Mm. So, um, <laughs> what was the point? We'll get to that damn costume. In that. Uh, our Robocop, which is like a, a sort of remake done by... It's sort of a collaborative thing, but a lot of cracked <laughs> actors and, uh, made their own version uh, of certain scenes. And at the end, they look across into a car park and they see someone dressed in a, a remake Robocop costume. It's like this black bodysuit and this stupid <laughs> helmet. And they're like, oh, hey, isn't that the new Robocop? He's like, ah, and does a screaming noise. My voice just... <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's like digging through the trash. It's Donald Sutherland pointing and screaming. It's, well, no, it's more like a little golem in the trash. And it was, like, <laughs> scavenging. And it's like... <laughs> and then, yeah. Anyway, put that in the footnotes. Our Robocop is... Like, I think it's only about 45 minutes long, but it's a good 45 minutes. <laughs> I think as long as we, you know, we're not uh, waffling on too much about which shit and uh, we're having a good conversation and a bit of a laugh. Yeah. Because there's going to be minutes where there's nothing to really talk about, so we can always, you know, pad them out with uh, weird Bullshit. weird stuff like our own remake ideas yes. and that. And so, yeah, I've got a lot to say about the Robocop costume, but I shall reserve... Yes. I am looking forward to when we get that reveal, because, man, yeah, yeah, I can't wait to talk about that. I mean, I'm the costume guy, to the point that I tend to review films costume first. My reaction to a trailer will be very much predicated on the costumes, so uh, I'm currently reviewing Raced by Wolves as well. You can find it on Studio Yutani on YouTube, if it hasn't been taken down again. We're currently dealing with copyright strife. <laughs> yeah. YouTube is trash. Here's a funny aside. So doing a Kung Pao into the minute, one thing I do is when I'm editing, but when I'm making the VOD version of the cast, I don't want to use video because video can be easily copyright claimed. Mm. Stills, you can get away with to a certain degree. They don't usually go through the automated uh, copyright protection. They usually have to be somebody doing a manual yeah. DMCA. But for the most part, I am I think I'm covered. I'm doing critique and review that definitely fair, falls under fair use. So but what I do is I'll put the minutes at the end of the timeline so i can like chunk out the bits of sound i need for the like the clips i want for the voices the what they're really saying stuff like that and i usually delete all that at the end so because it's usually literally at like five ten minutes after the end of the episode just in a space just to quickly grab and drop i forgot to take that off one time <laughs> good thing is it was one of the buffer episodes so it wasn't like it was going out and it didn't click that you know it's the project file was way too big and then like something didn't feel right about it. And I came back to look at the YouTube thing and it's just like copyright claimed and, like literally 10 minutes later. Mm. It's, I left video in there. Yeah. Gone. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So my recommendation, if you can get away with it, just go with still frame. And which doesn't look as professional. So mm. I know, but when you're dealing with shitty copyright law, even though you're doing fair use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Race by Wolves, my immediate reaction was, ugh, these costumes are trash and it looks <laughs> cheap and nasty. And you know what? I think my initial reaction was correct. <laughs> they're, they're terrible costumes. They're really bad. It's weird though, isn't it? When it's like, you think about that, it's like, we have a particular mindset when it comes to costumes. We've researched costumes. We make costumes. So I find myself doing that all the mm. fucking time now. I see a movie and my brain's going, oh, I wonder how that's made. Yeah. I'm still processing the movie, but then I'm like focusing on this one bit. So there's this bit in New Mutants where Magic has this necklace, mm. but it's basically dog chain with two clips on it. Yeah. Two 
days after watching that movie, I'm just there going, I can make this. I can make this prop. I can just do That's this. Cool. All I need to do is just go to Red Dot, pick up a cheap dog chain. I actually ended up buying two dog chains at least with the clips already pre on them because hmm. it was cheaper than buying the clips of Bunnings <laughs> separately. And they still are. Hmm. And I just had to bounce off the chain because it was just too hard to cut by hand. It was steel. You know, it's welded. Hmm. It was just one of those props that took me like less than an hour between buying, making... Yeah. But that's that's the thing. Sometimes the opposite happens where really clever things happen with costumes and it was so low effort. It yeah. just sort of, oh, we found this or we've repurposed it or, hmm. you know, it was a very simple solution. I love that. This race boat, it's a TV show, isn't it? Yeah. That would explain some things as well. TV show budgets, even though they've gone a lot better than they have in the past. Oh, but costumes generally not that bad to the point that I'm distracted by it, yeah. even with television. Yeah. The other thing in this minute that should be farcical, but isn't played that way is where the robots are like, may peace be upon you. It's like the silliest <laughs> line and no one... Yes. No... Oh, okay. Oh, I know there's people who like the remake and there's people who defend it and there's people who like it as much as the original movie. I don't see it. <laughs> I looked on YouTube and I found people not only defending but really praising the Michael Bay movies and I just went, oh. people will like any old shit and humanity is doomed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So this is where I always come down on when it comes to movie reviews. I always try and think of it. I've probably said this before and I'll probably say it again. I do think of movie, you should review things like objectively and as subjectively as much as possible. If you want to talk about the quality of a film, like production wise, all the type of stuff, and you can use objective term. I think this is a well crafted film. Mm. You know, I do use terms like it's a schlocky action film because that's very descriptive. Yeah. But it's, it's a well made film and it's very fun. It's very entertaining and it's smart. Mm. I could say all those things and turn around and say, I don't like this. <laughs> It'd be difficult, I know, but like that's just how you know. Cr I think criticism should work to a certain degree. You should acknowledge your bias as much as you acknowledge what's good and bad of a film. Yeah, like I cannot stand Looper. Couldn't even finish it. I thought it was really stupid. I watched ten minutes of it and kind of switched off. I just it really boring. And I like Ryan Johnson, hmm. but I looked on Letterboxd and all my friends and the people I follow are like four stars, five stars, all across the board, and going, "What? Seriously?" I need to rewatch it, I must admit. It is really cliche and cheesy and just, ugh, no, nah, hated it. <laughs> but I can at least criticize it or analyze it in an objective way and say, well, this is done well yeah. and this works and this doesn't work. And I can explain why. And I think that's the difference between a lay person just reacting to a film and someone who actually has some kind of film or literature studies or media studies skills yeah. in which you can actually explain why something does and doesn't work. And that's the kind of the magic to me. I love criticism because people can break things down into their sort of base elements in a really interesting way. Yeah. I was actually going to mention this uh, early in the beginnings of the podcast when we were talking about such like things about... So I've noticed this a lot and it's especially over the last five years and this has been a common gripe of mine is I'm getting kind of sick of armchair criticism not necessarily armchair criticism of itself I mean for the most part it is kind of shit mm. but when it's just like I heard someone say a thing and I'm just going to repeat that thing like it's my own opinion yep. that bothers me to shit because it was about five years ago when the whole the MCU is just a factory and then I think someone made that observation and then all of a sudden a lot of other people just keep saying this thing like they had this big revelation that oh my god these Marvel movies are a factory yeah yeah. Oh, shit. Every film studio is a factory. You fucking idiots. <sighs> yeah, there is that kind of hive mind thing where this one idea will catch on, then everyone says it. I've seen that happen so many times now, and it's never like directed to like one specific thing. It's always seems to be like this nebulous concept that people kind of like giant brain themselves mm -hmm. into thinking, "Wow, I had this massive thought." It's like, no, you fucking read it somewhere. I know you read it somewhere because they are the NPCs of life. <laughs> yes. And it's just like, ah, oh, you don't tend to see with people who have media training who say this dumb shit. But I've even seen people who know movies for a living have said say this dumb shit. Mm. Really? You're repeating that thing? You're better than this. Yeah. Yeah, if someone can connect the dots, I think that is the coolest thing. I have mm. the most respect for that. People who are able to take vast amounts of information and come up with this kind of connecting thread or this narrative to sort of condense it all down, whether that's... Oh, 
I have no issues with that. No, no, I'm saying this is what I love about... Alternate takes are usually really informative. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm saying this is a good thing. Yeah, that yeah. What I love most about criticism, and this is what true criticism should be, are those people who can just frame it in a way that suddenly makes it all make sense. And when I sort of started on my journey of, of self-education and learning about history and media and all of that, and just realizing... This was, I think, the, the prime example that stuck with me the first time it happened. I was sort of, I don't know, late teens, early 20s. I listened to a podcast about Mary Shelley, and then there was The Year Without Summer. Aww. That was caused by a volcano and somewhere in the uh, south of the equator. And then just reading about or listening to all these other different historical accounts of how this year without summer affected all the other different people, totally unrelated, and... Yeah, that sort of thing is fascinating. We just go, oh my god, it's all connected. It's just everything mm. influences everything else. And media is exactly the same where... Well, actually, this ties into my next point. So... Well, you look at how many, how much people talk about like things being post-9-11. Like, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds remake was basically a post-9-11 allegory yeah. and things like that. Weirdly enough, people tend to want to dismiss reflections and stuff like that again i'm gonna use that nasty term that people don't like this is postmodernism thinking this is using your analysis tools to think okay why is this a thing oh it's directly inspired by this thing it's inspired by these systems mm. it's great analysis and tools to, and yeah i love that type of stuff i actually like new and informed takes on things that's again that's why i think i keep going back to that maggie may fish uh, robocop uh, video because it's one of those things you go she's clearly studied a bit of this like she She's looked into the movie. She's using a lot of information to come up with a really interesting take on a movie. There's nothing really instinctually there to say that this is true. Mm, yeah. But there's enough evidence to support that take, and I love that. Yeah, and that's why I think to be a good critic or just being able to be write essays or just take an academic approach to anything, mm. you need to be fundamentally curious, and you have to just watch a lot of different things, read a lot of different things, listen to a lot of different things, and mm. take in all this information about science, philosophy, history, culture, whatever it is. Yeah. Because I do that, you know, I'm watching all sorts of various YouTube channels, listening to all these different podcasts, and without fail, I will always work that into a podcast of my own and go, mm. oh, actually, what if we analyze this from this perspective? And yeah, it, you're always going to be able to bring something new and unique if you kind of expand your your interests yeah this is why i like the uh i'm not trying to go in too much inside base i've always liked your prometheus by minute i like the fact that you do try and analyze these things through different lenses and different aspects yeah it's not something i i probably am capable of doing it if i put the time and effort but i think it's just those things like my interests lie elsewhere yeah <laughs> that's why i enjoy doing this to a certain degree i can i can piggyback off that and play in that arena yeah perspective is something that i'm really fascinated by and as i get older that's something I think more and more about is just you know what separates you from me from just anyone else and you know how do we all react to different things and how can we look at the same object or the same piece of media and have totally different responses and mm. that fascinates me so much and that's really what motivates my work is trying to sort of cross that divide so here's an interesting question in that perspective how useful do you think bad takes are I think it is valid because it just shows that this is a possible interpretation. The only bad takes I have issue with is when people read into texts and they say things that clearly didn't happen. Yes. This is typically the alt-right tactic where, especially when it's like something like, say, Last Jedi or another one of those, like Wonder Woman or movies mm. like that, when it's just like they're always talking about how the man is cuckolded to the woman. You're just like going, you must have seen a different movie to me. Yeah, and that's that was what I was about to say is I think bad takes tend to say more about the individual than the actual piece of media itself. Mm. And that in itself is fascinating. And if there's enough people saying the same thing and agreeing, then you go, oh, okay, so this is kind of a movement. This is a this is representing a certain group of people. Mm. Like the controversy surrounding Black Widow and her whole, I'm a monster and I can't have children. Those are two not related sentences, but a lot of women who were already sensitive to that kind of issue yeah. took it the wrong way. Fat Thor. I was blindsided of, by yeah, that. Yeah, I did not expect people to find it upsetting. And then Fat Thor, a lot of, women who have weight issues thought he was offensive and yet a lot of overweight men 
thought he was a very positive role model. Okay, so I'm not going to say I, I hunted out all that stuff. I've never heard any negative criticism of Fat Thor. It is buck wild, and I can send you some links if you are so curious. I'm... <laughs> Maybe just stay away. You know what? I think... I think I'm going to pass yeah. just for my own mental health. Oh, it is. It's maddening. It is very much. These people are really sensitive about this issue to the point that they can't actually perceive reality anymore. Well, okay. I know this is going on a bit long, but I don't care. This is my show. Damn it. <laughs> I'll do what I want. So going on to about that, for those that know me, I cosplay as Fat Thor. I'm a fat guy. I am a big person. I try not to use the F word too much because I know people don't like me saying it even though I'm talking about myself. Yeah, that's the other thing is like policing the language as a trans person, I find my language being policed. It's like, if I want to say a word that offends you and it's about me, mm. I don't think you can do that. But I do have a history of self-deprecating humour, but that's kind of been something I kind of enjoy to a certain degree. Yeah, I definitely, I do tend to like self-deprecating humor so yeah so anyway um it was a big thing to see thor a character i genuinely love i've always loved and especially after thor ragnarok adore mm. in the mcu it was a big thing to see thor go through that kind of pain in infinity war and kind of the beginning of endgame where he's just kind of like kind of being raked through the coals and you know he's kind of a bit damaged mm. i think it's actually quite humanizing it wasn't played yeah and there are this comedy around it but yeah it, because it's you know that's the tone of the movie that they did manage to that walk that line of mm. there's comedy and there's tragedy here well watching thor be fat was the first time in an mcu movie where i was just like oh there's a hero that looks like me mm. and what happened was well there was false stake <laughs> Well, no, but I mean, yeah, I've cosplayed Volstagg. Yeah, you'd be a pretty good Volstagg. <laughs> no, but what I mean is that there's never been a, the hero that looked like me. Yeah, like the main, main hero, the, the guy with the name on the poster. This had never been an issue for me in the sense of like, you know, I've, I've been around this dirt ball covered in mud and water for a few years and it's never truly bothered me because at the end of the day, I'm going, I know reality well enough. I know that I'm not going to be represented in Hollywood by you know, the hero is never going to be a fat guy that looks like me. And to be brutally honest, I was expecting them to magic the fat away. Yeah, I thought that was going to happen too. Flat out. And I was there going, I hope they don't magic the fat away. I hope they don't magic the fat away. I hope they don't magic the fat away. Because you got to remember, there were trailers. We saw basically pictures of Thor mm. and he looked like Thor. I mean, yeah, I know Marvel trailers are deliberately false nowadays, mm. which is, I kind of like. But Pine was always there going, they're going to magic that fat away. They're going to magic the fat away. They're going to magic the fat away. And they didn't magic the fat away. I was just like, oh. They didn't magic the fat away. He was still a hero. Yeah. And that struck a chord to me. And that's pretty much when I was just like, nope, I'm not shaving my beard off anymore. I'm going to grow it out. I am going to build a Thor costume. Yeah, that's cool. And I debuted that at Bricktober last year, which is, yeah, always coming up to 12 months. Unfortunately, Bricktober this year has been cancelled, which is sad. Oh, that's to be expected. Yeah. 2020 COVID. Yeah. But I had, like, three people. It's only three people. But I had three people come up to me and say, thank you for being Thor, being a big guy. Mm. You know, I think it's positive representation. Thank you very much. And, you know, you do get fat kick called Fat Thor and stuff like that. Kids are kids. I just, you tend to just acknowledge all that shit. But that really deeply affected me. Mm. And it's just that thing where I'm like, God, I, I do feel emotional just saying it. As someone who's never been, I'm a cishet, well, pan, but I'm a cishet white guy. And pandemonium sexual. <laughs> Pandemic sexual. <laughs> it's not like I've never seen a cishet white guy on screen before. Yeah. But I've never connected to heroes. I, I, I do love, I've said before, and I always wanted to be Robocop. You know, there are heroes I'd love to mm. be, but at the same time, they're going, I'm a little fat kid. I'm never going to be Batman. I'm never going to be Spider Man. I'm never going to be these characters. So it never struck me that hard until literally that moment of like, holy shit, I've, I've never been this. I, even though I got it intellectually, why people react in such a way to things like Black Panther and Wonder Woman mm. and all those kind of things, that representation, I get it but didn't feel it. And this was the first time I was like, oh, oh, well, oh, that's what that feels like. Yeah, and I think that is the power of fiction, that it allows us to explore mm. elements of ourselves. And yeah, I, I had a roommate 
who was like, I just don't get the point of watching or reading fiction because it didn't really happen. So what's the point? Like, what are you getting at? And I went, oh, 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 buddy. Yeah, it is very much. Why do we have art? Yeah, what's the point of things that aren't real? And yeah, it is, it's almost a, it's therapeutic, it's cathartic, it conveys Mm. messages, whether intentional or unintentional. And so for me, that's why I tend to gravitate towards stories about androids and cyborgs and all of that, because it's dealing with Mm. these kind of transhumanist ideas that are very relevant and personal to me that I don't see in anything else. You know, I feel like I'm very much a a man or an android out of time. And I'm, (laughs) yeah, dealing with issues that are not seen anywhere outside of science fiction. Oh, I just realized we're coming up to the end of the episode. We haven't got a Duex mention. Oh, there it is. Deus Ex, yeah. I never asked for this. Deus, Deus. Ex. I keep saying Deus. Yes. Deus Ex. But my last note, um, we went on a tangent there, but my last note was that... Please, please, please give us your last note. So Novak, uh, Sam Jackson, his full quote... Oh, your last note's about the remake? Nah, nah, nah. Uh, nah <laughs> go on. Uh, he's full... I keep forgetting his name. Yeah, well, I wrote it down so that I remember. (laughs) So, Novak's full quote is, Not too long ago, that would have been American men and women risking their lives to pacify these people. And Mm -hmm. that really stood out to me because I've been watching The Boys, I've been watching the Bayformers movies, and it's this recurring theme that the lives of Americans, you know, the, the notion of saving or protecting America... Hmm. seems to be more significant in American stories than saving humanity, preserving humanity as a whole. And it's implied that American lives have more value than just any other human life. And there's something very insidious about that. Yeah, it's... uh, This is why I wrote my sentence as the glory of American patriarchy in the Middle East. It's it's not about good versus evil. It's, It's really not even about trying to stop the insurgents. It's America waving its dick. Mm Mm-hmm. And say what you will about the Cheeto-in-Chief, it's really bringing into sharp focus just how kind of fucked up it's gotten. Yeah. You get a sociopath in a role of power with people who are flat out supporting him doing horrendous, literal fascist things. And people are saying, no, no, he's not a fascist. Mm. I made a post like about how he knowing about COVID and doing nothing has cost 20,000 people's lives. Mm. And a friend of mine is going, no, he didn't do anything. He's not responsible. He's, the that's, implication that's the exact point. He didn't do anything. That's the, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean... Like, how could you not see that and go... There's a reason why Superman isn't truth, justice, and the American way anymore. Yeah. Uh, of all the freaking years, it's kind of like, geez, America, could you just not? Mm. Just Could you just not? Having watched the Bayformer movies recently, <laughs> it does occur to me <laughs> that this opening for the remake of Robocop is more appropriate to that kind of world, mm. That especially the first Transformers movie where you do have soldiers in Qatar, I think it was, yeah. and there's very much that American presence in the Middle East military kind of subplot Mm. there's nothing about the military in the rest of this it's about robocop (laughs) not soldier cop although i mean so robo soldier well that's that's the other problem is that it's supposed to be set in the future but it feels too modern yeah i don't get that it's that that weird because there's robots yeah because robocop the original very much feels like it's in the 80s but also kind of timeless and it's almost like 80s adjacent because it's you look at robocop you look at the aesthetics and stuff and it does have a bit of futurism going on there mm. but it's a familiar futurism you, you look at it and going this is where this country is going to be in 20 years just utter shit yeah whereas not the middle east will always just look like that it's just going to look like sepia tones just this time it's going to have rubits mm-hmm. rubits fuck i'm saying it derogatory because i think they are derogatory in that movie they're not good robots. They're not the good boys. Yeah. They're not even interestingly designed. I mean, ED-209 literally only looks that way because ED-209 looks the same way. And the thing is, ED-209 has more character. Mm. It doesn't have an expression, but it has a character. That void where its mouth would be, you know, and the grating where the thing... It has character. ED-209 just looks like a mech. Yeah, everything about the designs in this just looks so generic. It, it's the same issue I have with uh, the designs in, in Transformers. It's just, mm. It just looks like a pile of scrunched up alfoil. Yep. And 
it doesn't look iconic. There's no, yep. there's nothing about the silhouettes. You know, yep. 80s movies like Tron yeah. or Robocop mm. or Star Wars, like those vehicles mm. and those character or robot costumes, you immediately know what who they are just by their silhouette. Yeah, it, it's insane how... I'm going to use a term because it's it has gone to this point. And I love this, so I hate to use it. It's all Mass Effect now. I love Mass Effect. It used to be unique. Mm. Now everyone's copying Mass Effect for their designs, and it fucking shits me. Well, it's either that or it's the MCU. But I mean, like, for science fiction, like... For sci-fi, definitely, yeah, it's got that Mass Effect look. Picard! All the designs in Picard are Mass Effect! Oh my god, yeah. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, they even use the bloody robot tentacle monsters! Uh, I'm trying to think of any science fiction I've watched re- that's come out recently that looked really distinct. I mean, I don't know. I'll have the design Star Trek rant one day, but yeah. probably not today. I mean, devs... We're already running a little bit over. Yeah, devs, uh, Raised by Wolves, Altered Carbon. Nah, none of them are like, oh my god, wow, this is this looks like nothing I've ever seen before. Mm. Everything's getting very homogenous now. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that the only clean future we do get is Star Trek, and even Star Trek is turning dirty. Mm. Dirty sci-fi was pretty much a staple of the late 70s, early 80s. Like, Aliens and Star Wars are pretty much the... Love it. Grungy. Sorry? It's, I love it. It's all grungy. I think it's a crunchy. It's like, that's a different term. Yeah, grunge. The grungification of sci-fi, I think. It's crunchy rolls out of me. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, crunchy with props is where you kind of make it look a little bit shit. Mm-hmm. Just to give it a bit of character. I like to crunchify a few things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's probably the uh, a good place to stop. I think that about covers it. Yes. Uh, Connor, where could we find you? Yes, so you can find me on TriviandDesigns.com, T-R-A-V-I-A-N, or there's Alien Prequels by Minute on Facebook, or Patreon.com slash TriviandDesigns. Excellent. Uh, I'm not sure if I said my name this entire episode, but I am Simon. You can find me on Fanboy Crossing. Just Google that shit. I also do the podcast Kung Pao by Minute. Check out my stuff on YouTube where I have vlogs and all sorts. Oh, here's an interesting thing. I've been recently got a buff on my YouTube videos for my graphite rubbing uh, videos. I-, I don't know how, but... Wait, what? People just randomly coming onto my graphite rub videos and saying, Oh, I like this. How do you do this? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Random? Mm. I made those videos over a year ago and now they're blowing up. Oh, yeah. That fuck? happens with stuff I've posted where it's like, <laughs> Oh, suddenly everyone's reading this fan fiction that I wrote two years ago. Okay. Yeah. The algorithm is weird. So thank you very much, Connor. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) 